we are in week eight of this series, answering the whole question, what kind of church? If you remember, back to eight weeks ago, we started off by looking at the kind of church that God has designed. We started with the big picture. We saw how his plan has really always been to have a people who belong to him for the praise of his glory. And so he's called us on a mission to see the kingdom of God advance in our city, in our nation, ultimately to the very ends of the earth. And then having looked at the big picture, we began breaking it down a bit into what this actually means in practice for us here at Church Central. So uh, over the last few weeks, we've looked at what this means in terms of community, diversity, worship, the presence of God, prayer. And then what I want us to talk about this week is generosity. We'd love to be known here at Church Central as a generous church. I don't know what you think, but if truth be told, I don't think we talk about this quite enough around here. I don't know, maybe for fear of being seen as a money-grabbing church or preaching some kind of prosperity gospel, I think we tend to shy away from talking about money. But a little while ago now, I began to see that by avoiding this topic, in some way, actually, I was sinning against you. Because when you read the Bible, you see God has a phenomenal amount to say about this subject. In fact, by avoiding this subject, I was robbing you of one of the few external indicators that the Bible generously provides us with as a window into what's actually going on in our hearts. It's one of the few things that the Bible would say, if you really want to know what you believe, not what you say you believe, not what you think you believe, not what you like portraying to others that you believe. If you want to know what you really believe, check out how you spend your money. Because how you spend your money will reveal to you what you really believe, what you really value, where your heart really is. And so, unashamedly, we're going to be talking about money today. But, you can all relax, we're not going to be taking an extra special offering at the end, that this isn't a a big dramatic push to raise extra funds, that's not what we're doing, that's not the primary motivation of this. Ultimately, what I'm making an appeal for isn't your money, but your heart, because the Bible's pretty clear on this. How you view money and how you spend it will expose what you truly value and what you actually worship. Let me give you a few examples. First of all, Ecclesiastes 5 verse 10 says this, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. Listen, if chasing money is what your life is ultimately all about, you need to hear it from me right now, you are never going to be fully satisfied. 
If you think that pursuing money is the answer to all of your emotional, all of your spiritual needs, is never going to solve it for you. Matthew 6, 24 says this, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Couldn't be simpler. At the end of the day, you cannot serve both of these because ultimately you will find yourself in a situation one day where you have to choose between them. You'll be forced to betray one of them. So you have to decide which one you're going to give your life for, which one you are going to serve, either God or money. 1 Timothy 6 verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Hebrews 13 verse 5, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? It's like, why on earth put your trust, put your hope, put your confidence in money when you can put your trust, you can put your hope, you can put your faith, you can put your confidence in God? Now, these are just four of what could be dozens and dozens and dozens of texts that link the the state of your soul, the, the state of your heart to how you view and how you spend your money. So much so that I'd say that deep, significant spiritual growth into the fullness of all that God has for you is impossible until you face up to and deal with this issue of money. How you see it, how you understand it, how you use it. Now all of that is merely the introduction to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. That's where we're going to be camping out for pretty much the rest of this talk. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to see why we're to be generous, the motivation for generosity. Then we're going to look at what happens when we're generous, the outworking of generosity. Okay, 2 Corinthians 9, going to pick it up in verse 6. Paul says, remember this, remember it. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And so, right out of the gate, Paul tells us how we shouldn't give. The the, the whole motivation for Christian generosity isn't a command telling us we should give. It's not me standing up here at the front telling you you would all better give. And you kind of sit there thinking, I suppose I better give then. 
It's not coming from a motivation to somehow try and please God by obeying some command in a reluctant, begrudging manner, like, suppose I better do this so God will be happy with me. I better do this so God might be good to me. No, we don't give out of a reluctant or a begrudging spirit. That is not why we're generous. But then, Paul goes on to spell out why we are. He he gives us three pretty dramatic, pretty compelling reasons here to be generous. Verse 7, each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. As it is written, he has freely scattered abroad his gifts to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. First foundation of Christian generosity that we see here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The foundation of all of our generosity is that we didn't save ourselves, we didn't earn our salvation, but that it was freely given to us through the grace of God, outworked through Jesus' death on the cross. We were saved by grace. It's not down to our own merit. It's not down to our performance, our good works. He has freely justified us, made us right before God while we were at our very worst. That's the essence of the gospel message, that you couldn't. He did. That you, at your very best, at the pinnacle of your performance, are merely filthy rags to a holy God. But while you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God. In him, we have been freely given. And so, now, we freely give. You see, the the, the basis of our generosity is the generosity, the astonishing grace of God towards us. The the basis of all of our generosity is the cross. It's not outside in religion. It's not let me try and appease God with this sacrifice. That's not what it is. It, it, It flows from a transformed heart. And so we see a a line being drawn here between those who have experienced the free, the lavish grace of God and those who merely pitch up at church meetings on a Sunday and know all the moral rules. One has a heart that says, I have freely received, and so now I'm going to freely give. The other says, well, this is what I owe God. I'm going to calculate it to the sixth decimal point, round it down, give the bare minimum that will let me off the hook. We don't give reluctantly. 
We don't give under compulsion. We give because grace has been lavished upon us. It's like generosity springs from the generosity that we've been shown. That's the foundation. Where this is understood, Christians are generous. Where this isn't understood, they're not. Where they think they've earned it, they think they have done it. Where they think they've got to pay it back some way. You sever, you cut off the wellspring of generosity. But it doesn't stop there. Let's look at this next one, verse 10. Paul says, Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Here's what he's saying. He, he's breaking down, very subtly, the myth of ownership. So some guy goes, oh, I, I, I baked this loaf of bread. Well, how'd you make it? Well, I, I used some wheat. Oh, well, where'd you get the wheat from? I had to plant a seed. Well, where'd you get the seed from? If you push it back and back and back and back, ultimately everything we have comes from God. And so... The foundation of all Christian generosity is the cross of Jesus Christ. And that, secondly, leads us to understand that everything we have ultimately comes from God. And so we don't buy into the whole myth of ownership, but rather we see ourselves merely as stewards. Which means, if you think about it, we we don't actually own anything. We, we, We simply steward what God has entrusted to us. So it's not ours. It's His. It comes from Him. It's been given to us for a purpose. Really, to to view anything you have as if it is your possession alone, as if you made it happen, it's a break in reality. It's simply not true. And for the record, don't we hate it when we see this kind of attitude in uh, our kids, if we've got kids? Uh, I mean, test me on this. If you've got children, take them to the ball ring on the 29th of November when the PlayStation 4 is launched. Go buy them a PS4. Kids see you think, yes, I can see Zachy's face lighting up. I love this church. Please, want to be at this church every Sunday. Don't want to miss messages like this. Go buy them a PS4. Tell them, I'm buying you this because I love you. Let, let them carry it up to the counter then you pay for it. Let them hold it on their lap in the car all the way home. Get home to your house, the house that you own, that you graciously allow your children to live in. Hook up the PS4 that you just bought to your television in your living room. Get it all set up, let them play on it, go into the other room, maybe grab a coffee or something while they get used to playing on it, then eventually wander back into the room and go, hey, can I have a turn? What's the natural response? <laughs> no, it's mine! What? <laughs> it's mine! Yeah, I know, I, I, I just bought it for you like 30 minutes ago. I, I know, and I'm playing on it. I want to use it. Nothing is yours. 
You own nothing. In fact, you're feeling hungry? You want some lunch? Go get a job. Like, I mean, you've got to confront those attitudes. No loving parent just hope those kinds of attitudes work themselves out. Like, kids. But we sit down. We try to teach them generosity, the value of sharing. It's what we do. We discipline where necessary. We shape where we can. We mould as much as we can our kids. But what they're doing is the same thing we're doing to God when we look at anything we own and go, ah, it's mine. We're behaving like spoiled children. And God's going, no, I I just got that for you. No, it's mine. You gave it to me. I know, I I gave it to you for a reason. I don't care about your reason. It's mine. So the way our children act that sometimes just drives us crazy is how we often act with God. But the Christian understanding is that ultimately nothing we own is actually ours. Everything we have is God's. He comes to us from Him. Now I think this creates an unreal amount of freedom. Here's why. My car doesn't define me. I don't feel better about myself or worse about myself depending on the vehicle I drive. It's not about, I earn this and it's mine. My, my, my clothes don't define me. My identity and security doesn't depend on keeping up with the latest fashions. My, my home doesn't define me. See what I'm saying? If I live in a big house, if I live in a small house, praise his name. He's given it to me. I'm so grateful. This goes back to that contentment we read about at the beginning. When we understand that everything ultimately is his, that ownership ultimately is a myth, instead we're merely stewards. That moves us towards the last piece that we see here. Let's look at it, verse 11. Paul goes on to say, you'll be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion and through us your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. So just to recap, the grace of God in the gospel has got to be the foundation. It's the foundation which enables us to be stewards and not merely owners, which then leads us to this last part, which is we live in an enriched kind of life where generosity keeps on producing even more generosity. We live an enriched life where generosity produces even more generosity. I don't know about you, I love the book of Ecclesiastes. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is simply the Bible unpacking that if you put your hope in and pursue anything under the sun, your life will end up being meaningless. And you can try to boil it down any which way you want, but in the end, it all ends up being futile. So we get this exhaustive list of things that you can do under the sun that in the end don't work out for you. I told you I love this book. You might think, what kind of guy is this? (laughs) Let's say, for example, you spend your entire life building a company and you're the chief executive and everyone loves you and you overcome every obstacle and turn your business into this thriving, massively profitable company. 
and then you grow old and you retire. Ecclesiastes would say is that within a matter of weeks, no one cares that you were even there to begin with because a new chief executive has new problems to overcome and new things to celebrate, neither of which involve you any more. And a few years later, you will eventually die and hardly anyone from the company will even show up at your funeral. I'll tell you, cheery little book, Ecclesiastes. You should open up. It's a great read. And when it comes to money, Ecclesiastes says this. You can hoard, you can stockpile all the money you want. One day you will die and you'll leave it to your kids if you've got kids. And maybe your kids will go out and squander the whole lot. And if they don't, their kids probably will. I mean, what's the point? It all ends up being meaningless. And we could go over thing after thing after thing after thing, whether that's the pursuit of pleasure or the pursuit of comfort or the pursuit of wealth or the pursuit of power, whatever it is, Ecclesiastes just knocks it right down and says, in the end, this doesn't work. But with an understanding that God has dealt graciously and generously with us, with the cross as the foundation for our lives, with an awareness that we are merely stewards. I believe we move into an enriched life where we can live open-handed. We're set free from a thousand shallow trivialities that choke the life out of most of the people around us. It's like we're no longer on that constant energy-sapping quest for more and more and more and more stuff that at the end of the day is going to end up in landfill sites or on eBay. Instead, we view our work and our home and our time, and our money, and our possessions, all of it as things we get to use, as things we get to steward for the glory of God. So, my house is a tool given to me by God to make much of Him. The the money that in His grace He has entrusted to me has been given to me to make much of him. And on and on and on I could go. And so we we live enriched, purposeful lives. Suddenly, everything has eternal significance. Every single pound spent has eternal significance. And so we give freely. We open our house freely. We practice hospitality. We give our time freely. We're radically generous because this life isn't the end of the story. Mature believers in Christ, those who have genuinely received, tasted, are living in the good of grace, are always going to be radically generous. They just are. And as God brings blessing 
we're not overwhelmed by it, as God, for whatever reason, takes things away. We're not threatened by it, because we're living this enriched life. And then here's what happens. Two further things to see here, and then we're done. Pick it up in verse 12. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, but is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. Because of the service by which you have proved yourselves, others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. Let me just pause there. We see it again, that the gospel of Christ, an experience of the grace of God, if we get it, is always accompanied by obedience, is always accompanied by generosity. Others will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing, here's our word again, grace God has given you. Verse 15, thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. All of our gifts, all of our giving, all of our generosity is rooted back into thanksgiving for God's indescribable gift to us. Two things happen when Christians walk in the generosity that God's grace just demands. Number one, the felt needs of people around us get met. It's very simple. When we live this way, when we are generous, when we are open-handed with what God has trusted to us, poor people are taken care of, hungry people are fed, hurting people are loved, sick people are given care, on and on and on and on. I could go, you know, historically the church has done a phenomenal job of this. And here at Church Central, we are looking to play our part too through our Christians Against Poverty Centre, through our work with the elderly, through our partnership with other agencies. We're we're looking to be a blessing to our city. I mean, just within a a three-mile radius of this building, there is incredible need. There are people walking in a level of poverty that would shock and disturb you. You don't have to hop on a plane to see this. It's right here in our city. Among Christians live radically generous lives. The felt needs of the people around us will be met in powerful ways. That's not the only thing we see in this passage. It moves on from felt needs being met to people praising God, people giving thanks to God. Now, if you follow the media, and I'd urge you to follow what goes on in the media, this has got the church into a whole lot of trouble in recent years. You see, it's not politically correct to help people and then tell them about Jesus. 
But if it's our conviction, if it's our belief, it's a, if it's our experience that the gospel of Jesus Christ actually erodes and destroys those root problems of poverty and injustice and racism, hopelessness, oppression, corruption, wouldn't we be incredibly cruel to merely provide for the felt needs and not try to destroy the root causes of the cycle of poverty. Yeah, we would be incredibly cruel. Listen, we give freely. Our giving isn't dependent on their belief. But we're not just trying to meet felt needs. We want to deal with people's biggest need too not just trying to bring hope to this world, we want to bring people hope for the one to come. Now, if you've been around poverty, you will know that one of the things that really sets in after a while is hopelessness. And the gospel restores hope. The gospel restores hope for the present and gives hope for the future. Listen, We don't just want to make people more comfortable for a season. We want to see people transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so it goes back to the radical generosity of Christianity that says, if it costs me my life, I'll love you. If it costs me my life, I'll serve you. If it costs me my life, I'll share with you so you find hope, not just for this life, but the next as well. This is how all of us have been called to live. We're to be radical in our generosity, open-handed with what God has entrusted to us. I tell you, if we ever get an opportunity to be countercultural is in this whole area of money. If in any domain, if in any area we're to shine like stars, surely it's in this area where money doesn't control us, but rather we demonstrate that we have been set free. I think for so many of you, the fears and the worries and the pressures of life just go back to this whole idea of getting and sustaining a certain standard of living and it often goes back to this idea of how you want other people to perceive you the car you drive the clothes you wear the phone you use the area you live in and the gospel sets you free from all of that You don't have to keep walking in that. You have received the lavish, unconditional acceptance and favor of God. You've been set free from having to impress the people around you. You have the favor, you have the approval, you have the acceptance, you have the love of God on you being set free from keeping up with the expectations of others. Who cares what they think if God loves you? You've been set free to be generous. And now that you're generous, felt needs are being met. 
and more and more and more people are giving thanks to God. So let me conclude like this. I don't know if some of you are thinking, well, just shut up and give us the bottom line. What am I actually supposed to give? What is it that's expected of me? But I think that's part of the problem. Because in the end, it's not about 5%, 10%, 15%, 20%, 50%. It's not. See, I I think you could be meticulously giving 10% and still getting it all wrong. Because you could still be giving reluctantly and out of a sense of compulsion and with no joy whatsoever. The issue that God is after is your heart. Not how much you give. What's the state of your heart? What's actually going on beneath the surface in that spirit of yours? When you give, are you reluctant? Do you give because you're compelled to, or do you just have a generous spirit? That's what you've got to get to the bottom of. Earlier in the year, I went to see my GP because uh, I was getting these chest pains. And my GP just bombarded me with a whole load of pretty intrusive, really very personal questions like, how much sleep are you getting? How many hours a week do you work? What's your diet like? How much do you drink? Do you have any debt? Are you anxious about anything? And I'm sitting there thinking, hey, this is none of your business. Just ask me some biological questions, please. That's what I've come here for. But what he was doing was looking for indicators of my overall health. Now, when it comes to your spiritual health, what you do with your money is a key indicator of the state of your heart. And so, if I could put your bank statement or your credit card statement up on that screen behind me, what would it say about you? What would it reveal? What would the diagnosis be? Do you really believe that this life is it? Or do you believe we've been put here as stewards? Do you believe that your comfort is of primary importance? Or are you on board with the mission of God to see this city transformed with the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you consumed with desire for the next gadget or the next item for your winter wardrobe? Or are you desperate to see the gospel spread to the ends of the earth? This last week, as you've watched the pictures of the devastation in the Philippines, have you gone online to give to the relief effort? Or have you just merrily continued with your internet shopping completely unaffected? Now please, what I said at the beginning still holds. I'm not looking to motivate any of you with guilt and with condemnation. Grace has got to be the foundation of our generosity. Really, all I'm trying to do is ask some of those probing questions, some of those awkward questions we'd really rather avoid, trying to help you get to the bottom of what's going on in your heart. At the end of the day, 
it's not wrong to buy new stuff for yourself. It's okay to drive a nice car, to live in a nice house. No, that's fine. Not judgmental on that. Unless we're constantly on a quest for more and more and more and more in a futile attempt to fill that ache that we feel. Or, or it's fueled by greed or selfishness or to impress others or to try and find self-worth. Then we've got a problem. Maybe some of you are going, well, look, I really want to be generous, but I've made some really foolish decisions financially over the years. Like a couple of years back now, I, I went to Tesco to buy a pint of milk and ended up buying a solid gold jet. I mean, I, I don't know why I did it or even how I did it. Didn't know you could get those kind of things at Tesco. But now with fuel prices the way they are, it's just really hard to even consider being generous right now. Okay, so maybe your takeaway from this message is you just need to work really hard to reduce your debt and stop spending more than you have on things that actually you don't need. I think for many of us, we need to wrestle with our heart and put to death whatever it is in us that demands more and more and more and nicer and nicer and nicer. And we need to finally do business with our heart and move towards being more generous. And maybe generous for you is like five pounds a month. That would be a colossal stretch for you because you're struggling just to eat right now. But for most of us, I, I think it's probably more than that. Here's what I know. If any of us in this room are going to be radically generous, it is going to require a whole lot of discipline and intentionality. It won't happen naturally. Because absolutely everything in our culture screams at us that we are at the center of the universe. And we've got these appetites that need to be satisfied with the newest and the latest thing. And so we need to take active steps to develop a healthy heart. Now, if, as a result of all of this, you want to grow in this area, to try and help you, I've put together a handout that you should have been given when you came in. If you weren't given one, I'm sure there'll be some more on the table out there. This is merely designed to try and help you work out what the next step could be for you. Maybe you don't give at the moment, or you do give, but it's pretty sporadic, pretty irregular. I'd want to challenge you to prayerfully consider whether you could become a regular giver. Maybe you're sitting there thinking, well, no, no, I already regularly give. I'd want to gently challenge you to consider becoming more of a generous giver. And if you're sitting there smugly thinking, well, no, no, I'm a generous giver already, I'd, I'd, I'd challenge you to, again, go back and consider what God might want you to increase your giving to. The Bible talks about a whole ministry of giving. Maybe some of you, God wants to entrust even more to so you can be even more generous. That passage we started with in 2 Corinthians says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. I think the problem is a lot of us haven't decided what we want to give. We need to go back to God and prayerfully consider what he wants us to give. 
Or maybe we did it, but we did it five years ago, and we haven't given it a second thought since. And things have changed a lot since then. Maybe you need to sit down again and pray again. Ask God, what does he want you to give? I'd ask you, take this away. Prayerfully consider how you could grow in generosity. What it looks like for you in your current situation to be a good steward of all that God's given you. Not because you ought to, not because I'm telling you you really should, but because if you get God's grace, it just compels you. And as we do this, as we seriously seek God, as we look to take radical steps of faith, may the Holy Spirit transform our hearts and our minds. May we quit being a slave to things that will never ultimately satisfy us. May we be marked and known for our generosity. And may the hurts and pains of others be met through our generosity. And may many, 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 many people give thanks for God's grace that in some way they've experienced through us.